And so let's get right to it today. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, and I'm going to begin reading at verse number 31. Remember, we're, we're in the Olivet Discourse. It's a, it's a sermon where Jesus was asked specifically about what's going to happen at the end of the age. He tells them, basically, that what's going to happen right before the second coming is going to be uh, the tribulation period. I'm talking about the second coming. I'm talking about the advent. He's talking specifically to the Jewish people. And, and, and so uh, as we apply this, we apply this to the next immediate thing that we are looking forward to, which in the church would, of course, be the rapture. But, but what happens right before the actual second advent, the coming with his people to uh, destroy his enemies and establish the millennial kingdom? The answer is the tribulation period. And so after Matthew chapter 24, Jesus has described the tribulation period. And that's what's going to happen right before Christ returns. Okay, then after that, he is going to go through a series of three parables. We've already looked at the first two. We looked at the parable of the, of the talents. We looked at the parable of the ten virgins. And each of them have a very unique message. One about being prepared, being ready. Uh, the next one was about working for the Lord while we wait for his coming. And now in the final parable, uh, uh, which, is, which is the teaching of the, the, the final judgment of all nations and all people. Uh, it is a strong warning. It's, it's, a, it's a warning about what real, authentic Christianity actually is. And so let's read this together, beginning in verse number 31. I think these are some of the most beautiful words in the whole Bible. Would you listen to me uh, as I read them to you? When the Son of Man comes in his glory, and all the holy angels with him, then he will sit on the throne of his glory. And all nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate from one, uh, them one from another, as a shepherd divideth his sheep from his goats. And he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right hand, Come, you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty or give you drink? When do we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? Or when do we see you sick and in prison and, you, and, can, and come to you, and the king will answer and say to them, Assuredly, I say to you, in so much as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Somebody better help me up here. This is, this is, this is great. There's a couple things here I want to read on in a minute. But there's a couple things here I think are worth noting that are not in my notes. So let me, just, let, me, let me just say this. First of all, these servants were surprised. Did you notice that? When did we see you do this? There was no show, no Facebook posting, no Twitter accounts, no self-aggrandizement. Self Here's what I did. They didn't even realize it. They did what they did and served quietly and faithfully and didn't even recognize that they were doing something super significant. Some people have a really hard time serving unless somebody else notices them or sees them or gives them credit or, or they're visible. But this seems to indicate that the best service that's done for our Lord is done quietly and faithfully with little to no notoriety at all. Now, verse 41. 
Then he will say also to those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed, in the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was, I was a stranger and you did not take me in naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they will also answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? The exact opposite. The exact opposite. Wait a second. We did so much. When did we not do this? Then, verse 45, he will answer saying, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. Amen. Amen. This is God's word. The title of the message is, To the Least of These. It's interesting. I love how this all works out. I've just been preaching through the life of Christ. And isn't it interesting that this sermon falls on a day, not not by my design, but falls on a day that we are intentionally trying to do something positive and to the least of these in our community. I think it's just really fitting. In 1994, Mother Teresa stood before Congress, the President of the United States at the time, Bill Clinton, his wife. It was a national prayer breakfast where all of the dignitaries from the country were gathered into one spot. Mother Teresa was able to address the crowd that day. There could have been a number of topics that she could have addressed with what, uh, and had generated, no doubt, tons of accolades and support from the powers that be. She could have spoken on the power of prayer, the need to love one another, and the goodness of America, and everyone would have so appreciated what she said. But instead, that brave woman addressed her remarks to what she considered to be the greatest atrocity in American history. Standing before political leaders who had done more to make abortion legal and acceptable than before them in any time in history, she said these words. I feel the greatest destroyer of peace today is abortion because it is a war against the child, a direct killing of the innocent, murder by a mother herself. And if we accept that a mother can kill even her own child, how can we tell other people not to kill one another? Please, she said, listen to this, please don't kill the child. I am willing to accept any child who would be aborted. I want the child. I will give the child to a married couple who will love the child and be loved by the child. From our children's home in Kolkata alone, we have saved over 3,000 children from abortion. These children have been uh, brought such love and joy to their adopting parents and have grown up so full of love and joy. What a brave thing to say. What a brave thing to say in front of people who literally made some of the most atrocious choices in history. And of course, we've seen the fallout of those choices for numbers and numbers of years now. And she brings a good point. And you can say whatever you may say, but I think most Christians and people of any kind of faith around the world all agree that Mother Teresa certainly spent her life in a selfless, 
selfless acts of caring for the most vulnerable and poor and, and certainly propagating for the lives of children, etc., etc., etc. And she brings to the surface, sadly, something that I think we often miss that we need to be reminded of, and that is this. Nothing is more fundamentally true of people who know God than that they care for those who cannot care for themselves. James 1 says it like this, pure and undefiled religion before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their trouble. Now folks, listen, we can throw up smoke screens all we want to. We can come to church, we can appear to be religious, we can sing religious songs, we can wear religious garb, and yet nothing actually defines more that you are actually a genuine follower of Jesus Christ than that you love like he loved and gave like he gives and serve like he serves, particularly people who cannot serve themselves. In this passage of scripture, it's super interesting that what we're talking about here is the final and ultimate judgment of all the nations. If you will, it's the final word on all things. And how many of you are glad to know that when it is all said and done, Jesus does get the final word on all things. In this final word of all things, he separates out those who knew him and those who did not know him. And interestingly enough, the way in which it was displayed or demonstrated or made obvious that some people were followers of Jesus and others weren't followers of Jesus was what they did with the vulnerable and the broken in the world. Meaning not that that is what saves them, and I'll get to that in a minute, but rather what clearly demonstrates, in fact, that a person actually is a Christian. That they serve and love and care for people who are in need. So as we open up this judgment of the nations, this final word, I want to share with you today three lessons that we learn about life, about ourselves, and about the judgment to come. Number one, my favorite part of this entire message is point number one. Here it is. The Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the first thing that you see when you open up this parable. You see there's one person who is coming, who's on a throne, who all angels, all nations, all people, all governments, and all worlds will stand and kneel before, and that is Jesus Christ. The Son of God, the Lord Jesus, will get the final word on all things. He is the Alpha, and he is also the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. Come on. He has no predecessors. He will have no successors. He is, he is established in verse 31 and verse 32 as the ultimate king of all kings, Lord of all lords, God of all gods, governor of all governors, and the final say-so on all things. He is the Amen, as he is called. All nations will gather to him. All nations will stand before him. All nations will bow before him and say what you want to say about Jesus. Deny him, lie about him, mock him. Listen, one day it will be evident to the nations and the world that Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. I was sitting in a restaurant yesterday and I... I I, it's just me and Angie, and we, we got there, and I, I sat down. They, they brought uh, our waters to us, and I, I started hearing <clears throat> uh, a couple workers listening. They were, they were like sitting in a booth over to the side watching a, a video. Like, you know, they were hovered around a phone. 
And I just started, I started picking up, there was, there was laughter, I started picking up. I, I could hear enough to know that this was something about, I, at first I thought it was a preacher. I, was li- I could tell, I was, hearing, I was hearing Jesus, I was hearing, I was hearing, I was hearing words that caught my ear. Of course, I start buttoning whatever they're doing. They're across, again, they're not right beside me. They're kind of a, across the restaurant. And I'm, I'm listening, and these guys are dying laughing. And, and I'm listening to what was... Uh, an absolute mockery of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. It was uh, a, a guy saying, "Now who, like acting like he's talking to Mary? Now who's who, who's who's the father of Jesus? Well, God is, which is true. Wait a second, you're not married to God, right? Now you're married to Joseph. So what does that mean? Did you basically cheat on Joseph with God? And it was just absolutely like sickening blasphemous. Believe it or not, the guy walked over to me. He was my waiter. And he walked over to me and started sharing me how funny this video was. And I just, I just, I just stopped and I said, hey, that, you know, like I don't know you, but you want to know what I do for a living? <laughs> that wasn't mean about it. It wasn't ugly about it. I didn't say, hey, man, God's going to smack you upside the head or something. I was just trying to, I was just trying to say, I'm not cool with that. And it happens all the time. Let the comedians mock. Let the nations rage. Let the governments make laws. Establish whatever you want to establish. Say what you want to say. Do what you want to do. But hear me, church. Hear me well. Jesus Christ is the Lord of all lords. And this world one day is coming to a point where they will stand before him as is clearly established in verses 31 and 32. All judgment, John 5, 22, has been committed to the Son. Philippians 2, verse 6, who in being in the form of God did not think it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, took upon himself the form of a servant, and was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself, became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Watch it. Wherefore, God also hath highly exalted him and given him a name, hear it, which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven, things in earth, things under the earth, and every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Listen here, church. I'm here to tell you there is a name above all names. There is a person above all people. Come on. There is a king above all kings, and it is Jesus Christ. Come on. He's not a cuss word. He's not to be slandered. He's not to be mocked. And one day, all who will, will know ultimately That he is Lord. He is the Lord of glory. Look at what it says. When the Son of Man comes in all of his glory. What does the word glory mean in the Bible? It means weighty, important, shining majesty. All of which accompanies the presence of God. When we glorify somebody, what we we are saying, we recognize your importance. What does it mean when the Bible says that Jesus is the Lord of glory? Listen very carefully. It means he is the most important thing in the universe. He is the Lord of all glory. The Bible says that the king of glory is the Lord strong and mighty in battle. Uh, lift up your heads, Psalm 24, O you gates. Lift up you everlasting doors and the king of glory shall come in. Who is the king of glory? He is the Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. But watch this. He's not only the Lord of hosts, uh, 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 Lord of, uh, the Lord of glory. Secondly, watch this. He is the Lord of hosts. Watch it. When the son of man comes in his glory, watch it, and all the holy angels with him. When Jesus was standing before Pilate and they were about to crucify him, 
And Pilate said, do you not understand I have the power to release you or the power to crucify you? And Jesus says, I could presently call 10,000 angels right now. And this mockery of a party would be over in nanoseconds. He is the Lord of hosts. That means he's the Lord of all the armies of all the angels. In 2 Kings chapter number 6, the Israelites were surrounded uh, by an enemy. And they were surrounded. And the, the, the servant of the, 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 the man of God, Elisha, says, Lord, what are we going to do? We are surrounded. And Elisha says, open up his eyes, Lord. He says, those that are with us are more than those that are with them. And Elijah says, open their eyes that they may see. And the Lord opened the eyes of the servant. And he looked and saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. Are you hearing me, friend? Hey, it may look It may look like we are outnumbered. It may look like that somebody else is in control, but I'm going to tell you, they are more than are with us than more than are with them. And the one who controls all the angels is God himself. And he's the Lord of lords. It says here, he comes with his holy angels, and look at this. Then he will sit on a throne of his glory. That throne is the throne of all thrones. That's the point. The same word glory is used about him coming in his glory and also sitting, <coughs> excuse me, sitting on a throne of his glory. Meaning this particular throne is more important and more weighty than all of the thrones. The point is he is the Lord of Lords. Uh, back when I lived in California, our, 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 we had this huge massive choir uh, in our church. They had like 200 voices and and, and, and they, they, they sang this song, uh, Nothing Ever Can, Nothing Ever Will. And it just, it's, you just go look it up after church. If you, if, you, if you can handle driving and listen to the song at the same time and, and your eyes don't well up with tears or you don't shout or wreck or something, okay, maybe you should wait till you get home. But this song is so powerful. And the opening verse says this, Every power on earth and in heaven is a shadow in his light. No authority, law, or government challenges his sovereign might. His reign, come on, his reign and rule have no boundary. All that is, his hands have wrought. Nothing ever can, nothing ever will overcome the Lord our God. Somebody better cheer up in this place. I'm trying to tell you today that he is, that's who he is. God of all gods, Lord of all hosts, God of all glory. And here's the good news. You're on his side today. You're on his side today. That means you're on the right side. You're on the winning side. When this all rolls up and it's all over, I could summarize the book of Revelation in this text with two words. You ready? Jesus wins. He wins. The lordship of Jesus Christ. Number two, I want you to see the nature of authentic Christian faith. The nature of authentic Christian faith. Now, Now notice this. When we all stand before God, At the judgment of the nations, the Bible says he's going to separate these nations into two groups. And he's going to walk through with them why they have been separated into the two groups. Now, now obviously, uh, the the, the illustration of the sheep and the goats is, is, is very clear. The sheep are obviously those who genuinely know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. John chapter 10 calls Jesus our good shepherd. He calls us the sheep that follow him. The goats look like sheep. They are in the same flocks oftentimes as sheep, but ultimately they are separated. And the goats here clearly represent those who do not know Christ as Savior. So what is the point here? Well, the point of the text is not that you are saved by what you do, but that your salvation produces clear evidence 
of its reality. Okay, let's just say I was dead. If I was dead and I came alive again, there would be some very obvious manifestations that I am no longer dead. There would be breath, there would be life, there would be mobility. The same thing happens in your life when you become a Christian. Has it ever occurred to you that this wasn't about praying a prayer or checking a box or walking an aisle or getting a sucker on a church bus when you were a kid? This is much greater than that. Friend, when you got saved, you were dead in trespasses and sins and the God of the universe breathed spiritual life into you and the person like Lazarus who was dead is now alive and walking again. Friend, I'm just simply saying to you, when you are an actual factual believer, it's going to leak out on you somewhere. The Christian faith is an active faith. The Christian faith is a serving faith. The Christian faith is a caring faith. Therefore, people who are genuinely followers of Christ display these characteristics. It's not that hard to understand. For instance... Uh, in James chapter 2, listen very carefully. What does it profit, my brethren, if someone says he has faith and does not have works? Can faith save him? Can that kind of faith save him? Can the kind of faith that has no fruit of its labor save a man? No, it's not the same kind of faith is the point. Follow me now. If a brother or sister is naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you says to him, depart, be in peace, be warmed and filled, but you do not give them the things that are needed for the body, what does it profit? Thus, also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, now before you think I'm a heretic, please let, let me dial in here for just a second. Understand this. In James chapter 2, the greatest illustration in James chapter 2 is Abraham. Now, follow me. Please, everybody follow me, okay? Because if you miss this, you're going to think I'm preaching work salvation. I am not. You are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. And nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. I'm just trying to alleviate and eradicate this idea that I grew up in a good old boy city in the south and made some decision when I was two years old and, and, and no effective life resurrection has taken place. I'm here to tell you, friend, that's shaky ground to stand on. So here's what he says. He says, when Abraham took his son up on the mountain to slay his son, watch this, it says, he was justified by works. Now, we theologians are going to read that verse and go, bang, 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 bang. Wait a second. We're not justified by works. We're justified by But there's two senses of the word justified. One sense is the theological term, justified, which means you were declared righteous before a holy God based upon the merits of Christ and not your own. But there's also another sense of the word justified, which means uh, an action basically proved or justified a thought process or a belief system. So when it says Abraham was justified by slaying or uh, his willingness to slay his son, it is not saying that is what saved him. It is saying that is what proved that he was already saved. In fact, the very next verse says this, isn't it God who said Abraham believed in God and it was counted him for righteousness? Now watch this. That verse takes place in Genesis chapter 15. The story of Abraham and Isaac takes place in Genesis chapter 25. One preceded the other and one led to the other. Salvation happens first in regeneration when I believe in Jesus Christ he transforms my life and then there's evidence of that in my life to follow you can't shake that friend if you are a Christian it is evident so much so that 2nd Peter chapter 1 says if you do not grow and abound in the Christian faith you will become blind and unable to discern whether or not you have been saved in the first place. 
Folks, I'm here to tell you this morning that what we are seeing in churches today are people who name the name of Jesus Christ but have no personal relationship with him. I'd rather have 20 people in a church that really knew God than 500 people who didn't know God from a totem pole. Your faith is going to lead into a life of ministry service, particularly here, caring for those who are hungry, caring for those who are thirsty, caring for those who are strangers, outcasts, caring for those who have no clothing, who are sick and need visiting. This is tangible manifestation of the fact that I love God because the God who loves them, come on, does care for them when they're hungry, does care for them when they are sick, does care for them when they are in prison of Christ they committed does care for them when they're broken and vulnerable and all he's saying is this those that know God will follow their master they will follow their master I read an interesting um, editorial opinion page (laughs) not too long ago here's the title bleeding heart tightwads Nicholas Kristof who writes for the New York Times who is also a liberal like, like politically liberal listen this is amazing he said I quote The holiday season is the time to examine who's been naughty and who's been nice. But I'm unhappy with my findings. The problem is this. We, he says, liberals are personally stingy. Liberals show tremendous compassion in pushing for uh, generous government spending to help the neediest people at home and abroad. Yet, when it comes to the individual contributions to charitable causes, liberals are cheapskates. Google reported that the average annual contributions reported by conservatives were almost double those of liberals. Conservatives also are more generous than liberals in non-financial ways as well. What is the point? It has, this has nothing to do with whether you are a liberal or a conservative, a, a, a Republican or a Democrat. It has everything to do. The illustration is this. Let's not just talk like we're generous. Let's put our money where our mouth is. And, and I, think, I think in a church setting, to, be, to kind of put it where we are today, it's one thing for my church to be active in serving the community. It's one thing for my brothers and sisters to get involved by giving and serving and activating uh, an event like we're doing today. It's another thing for my church to than for me myself to. And this is just one little sliver of a life that would demonstrate that I am following Jesus by caring for those who cannot care for themselves. David Livingston, the great missionary preacher, went in part as an explorer but also as a missionary to Africa a number of years ago. Uh, it said for, at his gravestone, it says this, for 30 years his life was spent in an unwearied effort to evangelize the native races and to abolish the, dev- the desolating slave trade of Central Africa, with, who with his last word said, all I can add in my solitude is, may heaven's rich blessing come down on everyone, American, English, or Turk, who will help to heal this open sore in the world. And when you trace missions and you trace religions, I mean, think about it, in our, in our city here today, there's a whole network of what kind of hospitals? Baptist hospitals. Look, that's not a, like a great name for a hospital. But why is it called Baptist Hospital? Because it is Christian people that founded and funded those operations, just like Catholic hospitals, St. Vincent Catholic Hospital. What is it? It's had the influence of religion on it. And you go all around this world and all across this city and all across this country, and what do you find? You find that often nonprofit 
things, nonprofit helps, can in part be motivated and driven by people of faith. And I'm saying to you, that is true generally, but it should be true in all of our lives. Human need moves the heart of God and therefore should move the servants of God into action. Church, this holiday season, I hope, would be, in addition to being all about us, should in part be all about others. One of the best things you could do is power your kids up in a car today and deliver a basket to somebody who's in a broken neighborhood and from a broken home. I want my kids to see it. I want them to know not everybody lives in a peaceable home, not everybody lives in a fancy house, not everybody has two or three cars that aren't rattling and breaking down. I want them to see the world for what it really is and start to catch a heart for it. So maybe a, another application is as you're making your Christmas list and you know your kids have already asked you for 75 things. And I don't even want to go down that trail right now because the kids would not like me if I did. <laughs> Maybe you should put something on your Christmas purchase list that's actually for somebody else that actually needs something. Because we are people of faith. What is the nature of authentic Christian faith? It is serving, loving, and sacrificing for those who are most vulnerable. Which leads me to the final part, and that's this, the reality of eternal judgment. Now, folks, listen. The second, the third thing that really stands out from the story that Jesus gives us is clear. That there is a judgment. And that there's two different types of people in this world. There's sheep and there's goats. Or I could say it like this, there's saved people and lost people. There's people that are that know Jesus Christ as their personal Savior and people that don't. There's not three categories. There's not four categories. There's not 57,000 denominations in the Bible. There's people that know God. There's people that don't know God. Can I just stop and ask you this question today? Do you, can you say that you genuinely know Christ as Savior? Right here, right now, do you know for absolute certain that your, your relationship with God is settled through Christ and that you are on your way to heaven to be with him and live forever? Do you know that? If not, friend, I'm telling you, at the end of all time, there's going to be a separation of the sheep and the goats. And there's two different kinds of people, and and subsequently, there's two different destinations. Some go into the everlasting joy of the Lord. We call that heaven. That he's been preparing for years and years and years the glory, the promise, the home. Anybody looking forward to home? Boy, I got to tell you, I I can't remember who it was here. Maybe I can't remember if it was Steve or I think it was Jake on, on Monday night. Oh, goodness. He reminded us of what heaven will not be and what heaven will be. And it was a wonderful reminder. And I was kind of upset because I was going to do that today. But he did it already. And, but I can tell you at least this much. I agree with everything he said. And I said amen to every word. And, and I can say I'm looking forward to heaven. Anybody else out there looking forward to that? Come on. Hey, listen. If this is your best you're in the wrong zone, friend. It ain't, this is not the best life. Are you kidding me? The best life is the one to come. Paul said for me to live is the Christ and to die is gain. I'm going to go and depart and be with Christ, he says, which is far better. Man, your first day in heaven, you will know that everything you left behind 
was simply a shadow and a mirage of all things that were good. It was just a little, every once in a while, as the song said, just a foretaste of glory divine. I'm thankful for those little foretastes, aren't you? I'm thankful that in the middle of the brokenness, in the middle of the sorrow, every once in a while you get a little taste, a little sweet friendship, a little heavenly church service, a little song that lifts your heart, a baby born into the world, a blessing from God. A financial blessing. Just some little foretaste of glory divine. Friend, I'm looking forward to the day where those foretastes don't just dot the landscape of my mostly broken life and world. I'm looking forward to the day when that brokenness is evaporated in the goodness of God. And it's no longer a dots uh, on the landscape. It is there are no sorrows. There's no pain. There's no cancer. There's no death. There's no tears anymore. The former things are passed away. And those that know Christ as Savior get to be ushered into that for all of eternity. But there's also a hell. It says it real plainly. I, the, the very fact is, friends, I, I wish there wasn't one. I've heard people say, I'm glad there's one because all these terrible people are going to go there. Friend, you look, you don't really wish there was a hell. You couldn't possibly. It wasn't even made for people. It says it right there in the text. It was prepared for the devil and his angels. But it was birthed for us out of rebellion against a God that has no choice in his holiness and justice, but to execute wrath on people that rejected his son and sinned against him. The wages of sin is death. The fact is, there is a heaven, there is a hell. There's two types of people. There's Christians and there's not. Believers, not. Sheep, goats, saved, lost. And those that are saved go to heaven and those who aren't do not. It's that simple. Now, friend, friend, look, if it is that simple and it's that plain, and I believe I can sit here for the rest of the hour and, and give you scripture references over and over and over again about that this is the reality. Read Luke 16, the rich man and, and Lazarus. It's just one other very clear illustration. Two types of people, two destinations. So a very simple question to close the sermon is this. Where are you and what is your destination? Where are you right now and what is your destination? Do you know for certain, absolutely without a doubt, that you are going to heaven? I can tell you that I do, not because I'm a preacher, not because I'm some good guy, absolutely not, but because of Jesus. And if you're going to heaven, it's the, it's the only answer you've got to. I'm going there not because I deserve it, not because I, not because I did anything to earn it. I'm going there because Jesus made it possible, and I've accepted him, I've believed in him, and I'm leaning completely, it's called faith, it's called trust, it's called dependence. If not, friend, then you are on a dead set mission for an eternity separated from God. But all that can change right here, right now, today. All that can change. Aren't you glad that that can change in a moment? I mean, you could right now open up your heart and say, God, I believe this. I'm on the wrong side of this. I'm not a sheep. I'm a goat. I'm not saved. I'm lost. I don't want to die and go to hell. I want to I know you. I want to go to heaven. I want to I have a relationship with you. All you got to do, according to the Bible, is ask him. Believe in him. Receive him as your savior. And I pray you'll do that today. Could we bow for prayer before we close and dismiss?